Did you ever have one of the coaches reach out to you after a game and they were like, hey, Joe, I, I didn't like that you said that. Did you ever get any backlash uh, during your time so far? The only time I had any issue at all, uh, Skip Prosser, I was doing the game with Byron and, and Steve Wolf. We were kind of doing it as a trio. I was doing the play-by-play. Byron was the uh, color commentator and Steve uh, Wolf was a sideline reporter. I think in a game, David West had sprained his ankle and Xavier was winning, I don't know, by 15 points or something late in the game and they put David back in. And I think we might have all agreed maybe maybe they should rest him and take care of their, their superstar. And uh, we ended up getting a little uh, feedback from that. But All right, in today's Xavier Basketball 100 Years Podcast interview brought to you by Heartland Bank, we have none other than the legendary Joe Sunderman talking his time as a player as well as his time behind the booth. Enjoy this interview and stay tuned for more Xavier Basketball 100 Years Podcast interviews. All right, well, I am excited to welcome in Joe Sunderman here to the podcast, Xavier Class of 1979 who has made just a massive impact, not only as a player, but of course, as a broadcaster for Xavier. So Joe, thank you for jumping on the Xavier Basketball 100 Years podcast here. I'm glad you asked me. Good to be talking with you, Brad. Well, I'm glad that we got it worked out. Thanks for taking some time here. And there's a million different ways that we could probably go with this interview. So maybe let's start with your play-by-play work at Xavier. You know, when did you get the idea of covering games? And that's something you'd want to do where you go from a player and now you're on the you're on the media side. You got the headset on. You're calling the games. Like, when did that happen for you? Well, there was a, a gentleman named Bill Meredith that used to call our games. And I had played two years at Xavier, finished my sophomore year. During the summer between my sophomore and junior year, I hurt my knee. I uh, tried to play my junior year, but my knee wouldn't uh, uh, remain stable. So it was determined I needed surgery. And that was, I think that took place probably, I don't know, January or February. You just kind of worked your way to that decision. So basically, after surgery, I'm um, sitting on the sideline rehabbing my knee or really was waiting for it to get out of the cast. And Bill Meredith came up to me and he said, uh, Joe, you're not doing a whole lot. LaSalle High School plays Elder High School on Friday at LaSalle High School. I had attended LaSalle High School. And he says, I'd like you to help me broadcast the basketball game. I'd like you to do the color for me. And I, at that point, I kind of literally backed away from him, kind of got a bit in my stomach and said, Bill, I don't think I'm really interested in doing that. And he said, Joe, I need your help. I'll see you there on Friday. Be there at 630 on the stage at the high school. And he kind of walked away. And that's how I got my start, Brad. And so I didn't pursue this. It really fell out of the sky. It hit me on the head, which I'm very, very grateful for. And I went over to LaSalle High School that day, and I asked him, what do I do now? And he, he said, it's real simple. I'll tap on the table when I want you to talk. I'll tap again when you need to be quiet. And so we're into this about 10 minutes, and he's tapping on the table, and he taps again, and I'm quiet. And about 10 minutes into it, I thought to myself, I'm really enjoying this. This is fun. And um, so, so you, that's how I like, got my start. You like being on air immediately. There was, was there a little bit of anxiety and nerves, but it sounds like you liked it right away. Um, oh, I was very, very nervous showing up. But once I got involved in the game, and, and, and Bill, was a, he was a high school teacher, a former coach. He had a... Uh, a popular sports program in Cincinnati at the time, as well as doing the Xavier basketball games. He made me feel at ease. I was working mm. with a true professional. So I you could say I was in good hands. He wasn't going to let me do something uh, uh, to really embarrass myself, I don't believe. But he made me comfortable. And, yeah, I did enjoy it about 10 minutes in. I remember having that distinct thought, this is pretty much fun. You know, so I, I enjoyed that. And that was kind of uh, my first start. Then I graduated from Xavier in 79. 
And uh, I was really away from the program for just one year in uh, 79, 80. And during that time, Bill would have me uh, work with him on some high school games. I don't know, two or three, maybe four. And I would do the color commentary, and he would do the play-by-play. And uh, and the following year, I started working at Xavier doing the color commentary. All right. Well, and I have to ask, just because I know Andy Mack and Byron Larkin is so well, you know, what are some of the differences b- uh, between those two guys? Andy Mack, as everybody knows, is a fabulous broadcaster. In his 20s, he was uh, the play-by-play of the Chicago Blackhawks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to be that good at that young age and have that type of job, you're a sensational broadcaster. And Andy is extremely emotional, as you know, and uh, I think he was listed by Sports Illustrated when he was doing the Xavier games uh, as one of the top five homers in America, which we took. Uh, <laughs> we both took pride in that. Mm-hmm. In fact, we'd ride home from games sometimes, and uh, we'd be discussing the games, and he would ask me sometimes if he if he, if he thought he was too uh, much of a homer or too excited, and we both kind of decided if they don't like it, they're not Xavier fans, they don't have to listen. We'd laugh about that every time. But uh, <laughs> you know, he was a terrific broadcaster. There was also a game at Cincinnati Gardens, that might have been against Detroit, uh, where there was a bad call. And he would, he, he'd get mad at officials. You could see him actually kind of turn red from the neck up, and he would finally ex- explode. And there was a breakaway, an obvious uh, foul against a Xavier player. Andy popped out of his chair. He was going to start yelling at the ref, and I grabbed him by his belt, threw him back down in the chair, and we continued on with that particular broadcast. The next game out, they honored Andy <laughs> at, uh, before the game with a chair and a seat belt, Jeff Fogelson the old athletic director, and kind of made a uh, ceremony out of it. But uh, Andy's very, very excitable. Byron can be, too. And of course, Byron is analytical, um, knows the game extremely well. Andy was a play-by-play guy, and uh, as I mentioned, just terrific at it. I would, I would have loved to have sat by Byron Larkin prior to playing the game mm. because you learn his mental approach to the game and how to score and how to take advantage of opportunities. And just the way he thinks about the game of basketball, uh, you learn an awful lot um, of, of a mental approach to the game sitting next to Byron Larkin. And what was that transition like for you, uh, going from maybe more of that player mindset uh, as the color commentator and then moving over to play-by-play? Did you kind of have to adapt and change a little bit? Yeah, you know, it's, I have I have a couple kids, and at the time I'd go in the backyard and I would do play-by-play for them, kind of teasing them and having fun with my kids, so... It, without even knowing it, I had practiced a little bit. And I also had an experience where I was asked to do play-by-play for a high school game. And I initially turned it down. It's not something I really desired. They said, hey, Joe, we can't find anybody. Uh, will you come do the play-by-play? It was at Cincinnati Gardens. I think it might have been LaSalle and Elder again. I'm not sure. I know LaSalle High School was involved in it. And I remember trying to get uh, the roster from both the high schools. And I didn't get it. You know, three days before, two days before, one day before, I got it about a half an hour before the game because, you know, you don't realize they're not organized like a college is without the uh, sports information department and so forth. And I got it, and it was hard to memorize the names before that high school game. And I don't think the broadcast was very good, but I learned a wonderful lesson from that one experience. I knew if I ever got to do a game again, play by play, I would make very, very sure I knew who number 15 was, who number 32 was, so you can call the game without thinking what's that fellow's name that has the basketball. So what happened originally, I think I was with, I know with Andy and this is prior to doing a lot of play by play. We had a game, I think it was South Florida in Florida and Andy had a little problem with his voice. And he told me on the bus over to the arena, Hey Joe, you have to do everything tonight. 
And I said, what do you mean by that? He's like, you need to do the pregame interview, the play-by-play, and you also need to be the color commentator because my voice, <laughs> I can't do the game. So Andy helped me with the pregame interview, helped me write it out, and gave me some advice. But I knew from my first experience, I made sure I remembered the names and the numbers. That's what I spent the time I had allotted to make sure I knew who was on the floor. And I sat down, and I kind of enjoyed that. And then many years later, when Andy unfortunately had the terrible voice problems that uh, forced him out of the broadcast business, I was able to transition over. But I got a lot of help from from Andy and other people. But uh, it's more prep work. There's no question about it. You know, you broadcast a lot. I'm sure you you know realize that you've been on both sides of this scenario also. Well, yeah, and I've only just... I've only done one game play by play on radio, and it was actually for a UC versus Brown game. And it was like the first game of the year. And the uh, Brown play-by-play guy um, also did football, and they were in a bowl game. So Lear- mm-hmm. Learfield needed somebody random in the area, and somehow my name got thrown in. And I'd never, I told him I had done play-by-play before. I never did. I just wanted to give it a shot. Right. And, and so, so it, it starts, and the lights are on, and I'm going, I'm rolling, and I'm feeling pretty good. But I had only done TV games prior to doing mm-hmm. that game. And I didn't yep. know I had to cut to break. I had to say, like, hey, this is Brown Bears sports, uh, you know, with Lear Field, mm-hmm. and I needed to cut. I, I didn't know because on TV, you're just in the headset, music comes on, and they drop you right to the ad. And so right. I, that first break, we didn't get to it for, like, 10 minutes. We came back for 10 seconds break, 10 seconds break, and I was like, oh, my gosh, what a, what a terrible start to my play-by-play career here. So <laughs> I, I will never make that same mistake again. You know, that sounds funny, but when I – made my transition uh, to play by play. One of the things I worried about was how to start and how to get out of, how to, how to get out of the play by play. I think I wrote it down in a car. Oh, so, man. you know, but it, yeah, but that, it, it, little things like that, you don't even think about until you do it. But then the, uh, you know, the more you do, the easier it gets. Well, and I was that question about it. Well, and I was so focused on names, you know, style. <laughs> you know, you don't want to screw any of those right. things up, and, and that didn't even cross my mind. And because I had told mm-hmm. them I'd done it before, I should have consulted yeah. you before going on air. So, right. hey, I've heard you do your color. You're very good at it. No, I, I appreciate it. Hopefully, yeah. I'll get to continue to do more. I just got the Northern Kentucky call today, so it sounds like we're on board for for another year there. So. That sounds good. Good. All right. So I, I want to get into a little bit of, of the coaches. I mean, you played for head coach Tay, Tay Baker, right? Is that, am I saying that's that right? right? Okay. And then, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's then, right. And mm-hmm. then there's been Bob Stack, Pete Gillen, Skip Prosser, Thad Mata, Sean Miller, Chris Mack, Travis Steele. I mean, just a thoroughbred list of coaches. Who was the most prepared as a rookie head coach? You felt like they came into the program ready to roll and they were seasoned to kind of get the guys going. I think Thad Mata might have been, but that, you know, I hate to even say that because every one of those coaches um, did such a great job at Xavier and for Xavier. Um, but I remember the last game that Skip Prosser coached that was a loss to Notre Dame in the tournament. And it just happened to be that Thad Mata had coached the game right before that. And I remember watching his team play, and they were just extremely sharp. Although everyone has a learning curve, um, whether it's a regular season and then in the tournament again. And I always thought it was kind of interesting, Brad, just to watch maybe the body language of coaches on the sideline as they get comfortable. It's, it's usually much different from the first game to the 10th game mm-hmm. to the 20th game to the second season and so forth where they get comfortable along the sidelines. But, you know, I hate to put anybody in a, in a bracket there better than anybody else. They were all different. 
you know, even even the gentleman I played for, Tay Baker, he assumed the program that had won three games a year before he showed up. And he was actually promised that they'd be in a league shortly, but that did not materialize for various reasons. Um, but he kept pushing for that with Jim McCafferty. And finally, Xavier realized the dream of being in a league, um, you know, years later in 1979-80 season, and Tay never got the benefit of that league, um, which I think when you talk about Xavier basketball, one of the huge milestones for Xavier in the program was to get into a league where you could then play in a postseason tournament in the league championship. You win that, you get an automatic bid. And then you create excitement, which is exactly what Xavier uh, was able to do. I think it was, what, 82 when they finally uh, did that, maybe played Alcorn State. I'm not sure I've got the year exactly right Mm -hmm. under Bob Stack. And the excitement around that was immense. I remember the first time they won a uh, uh, an MCC um, championship, and that was a, a team. I think they might have been under 500 for the season, but they actually kind of sparked uh, towards the end of the season and uh, ended up winning uh, the league, playing Evansville over a Schmidt Fieldhouse. And I remember I can still see this today. They were playing. I think the song was called "Celebrate." Um, by Cool and the Gang and then Dwight Hollins, who was a nice player for Xavier, really good player for Xavier back in 881. He was sitting on the on the basket celebrating um, their championship where that song was playing. Schmidt had sold out to a 5,000-plus people in there. And, they, and, and it was the excitement in the thrill of winning again. And, um, you know, that those kind of moments push a program forward, and, and they most certainly did. But as far as the coaches – we can go through each one of them if you like, but they each have their own personality to some degree. But every one of them has been a perfect fit for Xavier, in my opinion. I mean, I mean, when you look at that list and you think about the coaches that have been here, it's just it's eye popping to look at guys that are still impacting the game of basketball to this day. Did you ever have one of the coaches reach out to you after a game and they were like, "Hey, Joe, I, I didn't like that you said that." Did you ever get any backlash uh, during your time so far? The only time I had any issue at all, uh, Skip Prosser. I was doing the game with Byron and, and Steve Wolf. We were kind of doing it as a trio. I was doing the play-by-play. Byron was the uh, color commentator, and Steve uh, Wolf was a sideline reporter. And I think in a game, David West had sprained his ankle, and Xavier was winning, I don't know, by 15 points or something late in the game, and they put David back in. And I think we might have all agreed maybe maybe they should rest him and take care of their, their superstar. And uh, we ended up getting a little uh, feedback from that. But, uh, you know, that and that was very, very mild. And I love Skip, yeah. but truthfully, I'll say this: it, it's funny the guys that are successful and good coaches, they handle everything very, very well, including mm-hmm. the pregame interviews, postgame interviews, coaches shows, and every one of those guys, they were just, just tremendous. I love Skip Prosser. He came in and he was invited immediately um, to give a talk to the Book Lovers Club. And Xavier was a group that actually raised money for books for the library. Mm. One of his first talks, and my mother-in-law happened to be a member of that that club, and she said, "Joe, you got to go and hear Skip talk." I thought, you know what? I'd like to hear that. So he gets there in, into the book lovers club, and he's telling story after story. And of course, um, he is quoting different uh, uh, authors and, and literature and different things like that. And uh, he has them; he just has them spellbound. And that was my first experience with Skip, and to watch him tell a story. Mm-hmm. And, and the way he treated the people there, he was genuine, and they just they just loved him. And I thought, boy, we have really got a good one here with Skip Prosser. And that's after we lost Pete Gillen. And losing Pete was a big deal, uh, obviously, as was losing Bob Stack. I, you know, you kind of remember where you were every time you hear one of those coaches were leaving. 
but the, you know, to follow up Bob Stack with Pete Gill and Skip Prosser, Thad Mata, Sean Miller, Chris Mack, and now Travis Steele. But it's about the Xavier community, too. I mean, you're going to play in a beautiful arena. And um, one of the reasons I chose Xavier, you also chose Xavier. You get a great education. It's in a great city, great people. I think it's a marvelous play to be a ba- place to be a basketball player. Yeah, I can uh, definitely second that. What about any of the coaches that just they were never on time? You know, you just you weren't sure. You you had the time, you had the date set up weekly, but it was just always hard to pin a guy down. I really never had too much of that. Skip Prosser was of the mindset: if you can't be on time, or if you can't be on time, be early. You know, it was one mm-hmm. of his things that he always said. Um, but really never had too much uh, trouble. The only thing you ever do sometimes is wait at the end of practice for a pregame interview. Mm-hmm. And uh, if the national guys come in for a TV game or the TV crew is there, you know, a lot of times I'll defer to them. I'll let them talk to the coach. Uh, he spends time with them. I w- may wait an extra 15 minutes or something for a coach. Uh, but I go back to what I said before. I get uh, good response from the coaches. Uh, they're, they're, they're good to me. They, they're conscious of my time and, uh, it works out pretty well. All right, then how about on the player side? Did, did you have a favorite player that you were able to watch and to interview during your time? I mean, take take me aside, you know, you know I'm sure you would have said – You remember hey, when you made those shots? Was that Minnesota you hit those shots on in the NCAA game? So it was the game, it was the game after Minnesota. It was Pittsburgh, the game after right, okay. to go to the Sweet 16. Yeah. But I do remember yeah. that. It was in Milwaukee. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's funny. You have glimpses of games you can remember as being a broadcaster. And I do remember you coming on and, and hit some big shots like Dante Jackson did against Georgia. You get these little glimpses and pieces. You know, that's one of the things I wish I would get to do more of is to interview players. Usually we have a senior night at the coaches show and we'll bring the seniors in and get to talk to them. I remember when we interviewed David West on senior night, um, we had uh, the show over uh, on Montgomery Road in an old hotel within the basement. And we must have had a couple hundred people attend that show. It was packed just to hear David West, his, his senior year, talk. And, uh, you know, he was tremendous. That's the one thing I really respect about the Xavier program. All of our players, when you do get them uh, a chance to interview them, uh, they all do a really nice job. They do a nice job. That's something else I remember about Pete Gillen. He had a, a program, Brad, where he'd take the players on the road and, and back in his era, they would usually have a, a get-together with the fans afterwards at, a, at some hotel location, win or lose. And he would random, randomly pick out players and say, hey, Brad, it's your turn. Get up there and give a talk to the crowd. Mm. And it was magnificent to see those players as a freshman the first time they get called. You know, it, it's not an easy thing to do. But as they got called several times, they became better and better and better at it. You could uh, see where they were really trying to educate our players not on the basketball court, but uh, off the court as well. And kind of bringing it into present day, kind of how is the evolution of, of the player taking place? I mean, you know, you look at Byron Larkin, a guy like Aaron Williams, James Posey, David West, Two Holloway, Jordan Crawford. You know, the level of talent that Xavier has had year after year is, is insane. Uh, but, you know, what do you maybe see in the players today that are different from when you first started calling games in the 80s? Well, I think the styles change so much in the course of three point shot, even though you can, I'm sure you can probably tell me when that entered college basketball, being a great three point shooter, uh, that you, that you were when you, when you played has changed the game. But I'm kind of surprised, Brad, it continues to change the game. It's, it's, I'm amazed how long it has taken 
um, the coaches to realize that's probably the shot you want to take just because you get three and not two points and the, mm-hmm. the stats work out in your favor shoot more more threes so the game has become much more of a uh, two on two three on three type of game a pick and roll uh, drive and kick uh, type of scenario versus what it used to be even in the early days of the three point uh, shot I think you had coaches that had coached for so long in the two point game it took them a long time to recognize how to access a three-point shot, how to set it up, and just how valuable a three-point shooter uh, can be. So I've seen it change where I think the skill player, the skill is uh, certainly better from the perimeter for the entire five-man unit. The other thing that really is kind of neat is now, and Xavier's a prime example. They have a, a full-time strength coach. They've had that for a number of years now. Uh, they make sure you're eating right. They weigh you in, and they're going to maximize um, your weight for your body type and tell you how much to weigh and, and what type of exercises to do uh, so you can jump higher, run faster, and still battle under the boards. It's just a, uh, there's a lot of opportunities for players these days. Even the machine now that you have over in the auxiliary gym, and it's been there for maybe 10 years now, I guess, or maybe longer. Uh, when you shoot the basketball, there's a big net around the basket itself, and if you miss, it pops in that net. If you make it, it goes in that, and it, shoot, it throws it back to you. Oh, yeah, they call it the gun. They, they the gun, have, yeah. They used, keep... to, they used to have the gun challenge in the off season, in which I was actually never a big fan of the gun challenge because basically what, what it was is uh, we had a challenge that each player, they had to see how many shots that they could shoot each day over like a three-month period during the summer. But yeah. like, like for me as a shooter, it was never about – the volume of shots or shooting a thousand a day. It was always about the quality of shots. So I was always very particular when I would use the gun. So I, w- I would only take about a hundred on the gun and then everything else was either on my own or I'd have a coach or a manager help me out with my shot. So I was, I was, uh, I was probably my OCD played a little bit uh, a part of that, but I wasn't a huge, I wasn't a huge gun fan. I'm, even when I was doing a lot of training and coaching, I was always careful with players i didn't want them shooting 800 shots on a gun i was like move around get it from a pass get tired and then get on the gun i would just see so many guys Mm -hmm. get on that thing for an hour at a time and and they'd get lazy and then their wrist would hurt and i'm like you gotta move a little bit more Mm -hmm. well you know what i saw you shoot quite a bit as good a shooter as you were i might be in your camp now on that (laughs) you didn't like it that much but i just think there are tools out there you know you you had I've, i've watched you coach a little bit and you used to have a drill, I think, and I, I thought it was a marvelous drill where you would do a full-court three-point drill that you would decide you needed to make, I'm going to say, 50 shots from three-point range. At one end of the court, you'd make one. You'd have to go to the other end. You'd dribble back and forth, and you would try to lower your time mm-hmm. in that you made, say, the uh, quantity of shots. I'm going to just pick 50 out of the air. But I always thought that was kind of brilliant. That had to be extremely exhausting. So you're shooting while you're tired. You're shooting off the dribble. And... That's game-like. That's, to me, that's like a perfect mix. I, I always had these full-court drills that I would do as a player to start the workout, and then maybe I would hit the gun for 50 to 75 shots. But that drill was like one of my go-tos that you're talking about. It was 100 shots full-court, and so you would do uh, – you'd grab your own rebound, sprint all the way to the other side. You'd have to make – you'd shoot 10 shots at the free-throw line, and then you'd do 33s from the right-hand side, 33s from the left, 33s from the top of the key, all off the dribble. And you'd mix them up. You'd do, 
you know, toe the line shooting, you do NBA threes, you do off the dribble. But that was one of my favorite drills. I time it. I try to get right around 20 minutes and then get my cardio down to where I could do it in 15 minutes. So that is, I'm surprised that you'd remember that, but that is one of my favorite drills without a doubt. Come on over to Heartland. Now to run a successful business, you need to develop a strong relationship with your accountant, your attorney, and most importantly, your community banker. If you find it hard to get advice from your bank, maybe it's time to consider Heartland. I'm Scott McComb, CEO. Come on over to Heartland, where banking really feels good. Rare banking feels good. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. All right, in the second half of this interview, Joe and I discuss some of the challenges behind playing during the pandemic, as well as offer some insight into this year's group. Okay, back to Joe. We're fine. It's just, it's just uh, you know, it's just so different. Um, in, in everybody's just feeling in the same boat. Um, I'm just anxious for it, for the COVID to go away and get back um, to the way I guess life used to be. And I don't know when that'll happen, if it'll happen. And, you know, even in, we're talking about the Xavier basketball, I think broadcasting in an arena without the crowd noise uh, will certainly be a little different. Mm-hmm. But how do you think it will affect the players when they go out and play and the football players have had to deal with the baseball players and so forth. You know, I know they put the cardboard cutouts in the uh, uh, baseball stadiums. And I actually read where some of the players said they liked that because it gave um, a more familiar visual look. Uh, but I just really think the emotional type of games, especially the home court advantage of basketball teams, that's driven by the fans so much. Mm-hmm. So I'm, 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 I know I'm going to miss the, the presence of the fans. I think everyone's going to miss not having fans there, from the coaches to the players to the broadcasters. And and I think you saw it a little bit in the NBA playoffs, too. I mean, a team like Miami getting to the NBA finals is a little mm-hmm. bit surprising. You know, had the playoffs been as they normally are with fans, does a team like Miami make it to the NBA finals? So, I don't know. I, I think you're going to see some teams react and respond well to it, and I think other teams are, are going to struggle. Um, but as a player mindset, I don't know. You always answer to the coach, and, and you know you're trying to do the best for your team. So you know I, I'm hopeful that the uh, the Xavier Musketeers won't be bothered by it by any means. You know, once once you start playing, maybe the first two or three minutes, you know, they once you get involved in the game, uh, maybe that goes away. Well, you're just so into, you know you're in the game. Well, and you can probably put some crowd noise in, and then the fans that are there are you're going to hear everything. So whether they allow. 100, mm-hmm. 1,000, 1,500, 2,000. I, mean, I still think you're going to feel that uh, from your fans, and I don't know if they're going to allow family in, but there's still going to be some crowd noise in there and then obviously the excitement of, of playing a game because they're going to be tired of practicing and beating up on their teammates all day. Yeah, I agree. So, But yeah, it should be a fun season. I saw some of the uh, projections came out. Xavier seems to be slated at the about the middle of the Big East. I saw you. Yeah, I, I picked uh, what, fifth and sixth, maybe, or right around that yeah. uh, location. I, I I think Kiki Tandy is is a key to the season. I think it really hurt Xavier last year that he was not available until January. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of maybe two or three losses that they could have possibly uh, avoided, but uh, uh, you know they're they have a talented group. They're a little bit unknown, so I can see why they're picked maybe further back in the pack. Because they have what seven new players and uh, uh, four transfers and three new freshmen, but um, Paul Scruggs I think should have a great year. Hopefully Carter has a has a, has a good year. 
Fremantle, you know, has uh, been picked as a team captain as a sophomore, mm-hmm. which is uh, says an awful lot about how his teammates feel about him. But he's a guy um, that is known for his practice uh, early in the morning and maybe late at night. And, you know, teammates notice that and respect that. And as a result, I think that's why one of the main reasons Zach Fremantle was picked as a team captain because he leads by example. But I love the coaching staff. Travis Steele is the head coach. Uh, Jonas Hayes is just a terrific coach for the big men. Ben Johnson does a good job on the perimeter. And Dante Jackson also does a nice job. So um, hopefully they can uh, have a good year. It'll be interesting because there's a lot of questions to be answered. All right. Well, I would like to thank Joe Sunderman for that interview. And stay tuned for more Xavier Basketball 100 Years Podcast interviews brought to you by Heartland Bank. Crawford eight. Crawford's got to hurry. Up. Oh.